Let's pray and uh, we will get started, okay? Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you so much, Lord, for your grace, your mercy. Lord, thank you for uh, having uh, yet, Lord, more patience on us today and being willing to preserve us, Lord, daily is uh, a true joy and blessing for us to know that you preserve us, you keep us, Lord, you sustain us through every every trial and every season of life. And Father, uh, we just pray that you would reveal to us your great power and your protection when we don't see it, when we don't feel it, when we don't perceive it, or when we don't have the right eternal perspective, Lord, help us to see that you are indeed preserving us to the very end, Lord. We thank you for it. We ask that you would give us wisdom now, understanding, grow us. Please help us to grasp the theology of this doctrine that we're going to look at today with preservation and perseverance. And we just ask that you would be glorified in our time and give us uh, liberty with one another to speak freely. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we are entering sort of that last phase of the Order Salutis, and I'm excited because I get to teach again. <laughs> it's been uh, really wonderful to hear Pastor Chris teach, and it's been really wonderful to have a little break. So, uh, But I'm really excited to get to this doctrine because um, we're going to cover uh, these last three aspects of the Order of Salvation. You remember uh, our chart, and we're down to uh, perseverance, but we get to um, perseverance, death, and glorification kind of uh, all lumped together sort of at the end of our life and then on into uh, uh, into heaven and uh, into our eternal state as believers. Uh, a lot of what goes on in, in, uh, uh, when we talk about death and glorification, this is what theologians call uh, personal eschatology. Personal eschatology. You know of eschatology on a cosmic level. That is God bringing the whole world to an end, right? But uh, the reality is, is that we don't need to wait for the end of the world to experience eschatology because the moment that any of us goes home to be with the Lord, we have our own little bite-sized eschatology just for us, <laughs> right? We have our own personal eschatological experience. And uh, how sobering is that, right? Uh, it's, it's almost, I don't know about you guys, but it's, it's almost unfathomable. It's, it's difficult to grasp that part of the Christian life is that we live this life one breath away from our eschatological joy, Mm -hmm. our eschatological realization, right? Mm -hmm. Where we come into uh, our final eschatological state. I mean, it's just, it's just unbelievable, right? I mean, sometimes we get so caught up in our mundane little lives here on earth, right? We just, we think this life will go on forever and ever and ever. And uh, matter of fact, that's actually a sign of the wicked, right? I uh, forgot where, it's, where it says this, but one of the minor prophets says that, you know, the, uh, the heart of man tells him that he will abide in this house forever. <laughs> Thinking that we're just gonna go on and on, right? And we're always gonna live in our drywall homes and our brick and mortar, but we're not. You know, the reality is, is that this order of salvation not only gives us a glimpse as to how salvation works, but how our lives are mapped out, right? how our lives are mapped out by God. And uh, so definitely very sobering. So, uh, but today focusing on uh, perseverance, perseverance. Now, let me begin because as a Calvinist church, as a Reformed church, um, you understand that we believe in the, the, the perseverance of the saints, 
right? And what does the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints teach? Well, it teaches that if you, in fact, are a saint, if you are, in fact, the elect of God, and you have been regenerated, that you will persevere to the end, and uh, that you will not falter in your faith, no matter uh, what happens to you, no matter if you've gone into a season of sin, no matter if you've fallen into sin, no matter if you've had a temporary apostasy, uh, at the end of the day, as it says in the Proverbs, the righteous man, after he falls seven times, gets up, right? But the wicked does not. He just accepts his sinful state, and he never rises again and never walks with God again. But uh, because we believe in the preservation or the perseverance of the saints, um, that comes with, certain, with a certain stigma nowadays. It comes with a certain stereotype, right? Because those who would be uh, of a more Arminian perspective or who would object to the classic reform position would say that the perseverance of the saints is really uh, a doctrine that allows for what is known as antinomianism. Does any, what is antinomianism? Can someone define that for us? Without the law. What's that? Without the law. Uh, without the law. Yes, sort of. Um, anti, right? Anti and... I, I can't give a definition, but I guess my, my example would be of trying to live sinfully without any regards to uh, sanctification. Okay. Yeah, I think there's, there's definitely truth in that. Definitely. Uh, Mike? I just see that someone who's going to live in their own righteousness. Uh-huh. What does the word, I'm sorry, uh, Landon. Oh, just make it easy, the easiest way for us to understand this is what does the word antinomian mean, right? Where does the word come from? If something is anti, right, that's a preposition, right, which means against, right, against. And then namas is where we get the word law. Right, so really it is an anti-law uh, position, an anti, uh, a contrary to the law, or some would just simply define it as a lawless way of conceiving of the Christian life. And uh, we are certainly not called to live our lives that way, right? We are not at all called to live a life that is openly antinomian against the laws of God. We are not at all called to live a life that is lawless, right? So, um, but can you see where the Arminian perspective is coming from? When you say that if you are a child of God, if you are born again, if you are elect, then you will persevere to the end. And as believers, we see that from the perspective of assurance. We see that from a perspective of eternal security. But the Arminian is saying, well, then if that is true, then what that means is that you can live however you want because, you know, one saved, always saved, right? Uh, it, which is more of a fatalistic way of looking at life, right? It's more of a sera sarah type of, uh, of a worldview that says, look, you're regenerate, live however you want, <laughs> right? Of course, that's not at all what uh, Reformed theology has ever taught. Uh, for example, if you look at Romans chapter... Romans chapter... Uh, Six, right? Uh, the classic passage that really speaks against that. And I say Reformed theology, and I tell you to turn to Romans six. <laughs> it's kind of historically anachronistic, but uh, 
But we know where the, uh, Reformed theology really gets it from. It comes from places like Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? See, that's the charge. That's the Arminian charge against Reformed theology that we can just go on ahead and continue in sin because you're eternally secure and uh, nothing that you do will ever cause you to lose your salvation. So you're secure and nothing will change that. And uh, that means you can live like the devil until you get to heaven. <laughs> of course, we know that the Bible teaches us that the grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness. So in the same way here, may it never be, right? That's. Uh, in the Greek New Testament, that phrase, may it never be, is, is the strongest way that a person can say no to something. Uh, it is the most powerful negation in the Greek language. Uh, some translations translate it, God forbid, right? By no means. May it never be. There's no stronger objection to that notion um, that, that we could live in sin because of the grace of God. And for us to say, by no means, may it never be, in no way, no way whatsoever, right? However you want to say it. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And so the, the rationale behind uh, perseverance and eternal security in these things is that, in fact, <clears throat> if there has been a nature change, if our nature has truly changed, which is captured in the words, we who died to sin, right? We've had a nature change, a status change. And if your status has truly changed, then guess what? We will not live in sin any longer. That's, that's, um, that's, that's a byproduct of regeneration. So obedience is the byproduct of regeneration, right? And he goes on to say that in verse 17 right here in chapter 6. He says, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin... Right, verse 17. Though you were slaves, you became obedient from the heart. Now, that's a big uh, phrase there. From the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. That's an amazing verse because what it's saying is that there's an authentic desire for obedience, right? Whereas prior to regeneration, you may have had a religious desire. A desire. You may have had a... Uh, a, a desire that was rooted and grounded in uh, moralism, right? How many of our friends and neighbors operate day to day based on moralism, sort of the man upstairs theology, right? Do good, good will happen to you kind of thing, right? A virtual karma, a philosophy, a way of life that says, you know, just try to be the best person that you can and, you know, everything will be all right. Uh, which that is not at all what this is saying. What this is saying is that you've had a heart change you actually authentically obey from the heart. All these heart passages, I mean, that'd be a fascinating study. Maybe one of you guys want to take that on for the next year or so. Um, trace down all the places in Scripture where it talks about the heart being changed in all of the different ways that that happens, having our hearts cleansed, uh, having our hearts circumcised, having our hearts become obedient, you know, from the heart, all these passages that says that really the, uh, the essence of, of salvation is a changed heart. That's exactly what was missing in the Old Covenant. It was there was no changed heart. There was all this external ceremonialism, but there was no heart behind it. There was no authentic love 
to Christ, to God. There was no authentic worship to God in the heart, from the heart. What was wrong with uh, Cain? He did not love God from the heart. He just gave a rote sacrifice. He just gave the very minimum uh, sort of sacrificial thing that he could offer, and it was not acceptable because his heart was not in it. And what's the proof? He was not obedient, right? Because God tells him, he says, why are you downcast, Cain? He says, do you not know if you do well, you will be blessed, right? So if he had a truly obedient life to God, he wouldn't have to be uh, downcast. And just a really a primitive picture of what it's like in the Christian life. So those kind of objections notwithstanding, there is, <clears throat> let's move on to the positive proof. So I want to take you to John chapter 6. So turn there because uh, this, is a, um, this is a hotly debated passage um, on the issue of perseverance. Let's make it very clear. What are we saying in terms of the perseverance of the saints? What we're saying is that Christians who are truly Christians, right, <clears throat> through all of life's peaks and valleys, you know, the chart that was up here, um, uh, no matter what they experience in this life, in the end, they will endure. They will endure to the last day. They will never finally fall from faith. That's what we're saying. And this is all <clears throat> beginning with John 6. This is all owing to uh, a monergistic act of God. Uh, God is the one who takes credit for protecting us and keeping us. Right? I mean, think about that. Why didn't you wake up today and apostate? <laughs> Why didn't something happen to you over the night? You had a vision that Christianity was false or something like that, and then you were convinced and you're gone, right? God is sustaining our faith day to day. He's walking with us, holding us and keeping us and, and protecting us. That, that's, I mean, that's a total comfort to me to know that I don't have to live in spiritual paranoia that tomorrow I'm going to wake up and I'm not going to be a Christian anymore. I mean, if we had to live that way, forget it. If I, honestly, if I had to live like an Arminian, <laughs> right? uh, boy, I mean, it really should frighten you, right? I mean, I tell this to Catholics. I tell this to, to Muslims who have no assurance, no, talk about eternal security. They have no eternal security whatsoever. They are hoping that in the last day they have done enough that the scales will tip in their favor. What a frightening way to live. I mean, I guess it boils down to a deficient view of God because God is not as holy as the Bible says. Well, then, okay, he might grade you on the curve. But if God is as holy as the Bible says, then, man, you're a big trouble on the day of judgment. You know, um, uh, talk about, you know, uh, taking a chance or, you know, talk about wait, waging a wager with your own life, with your soul. I mean, it's so incredibly uh, perilous at that point, spiritually speaking. So let's read this. Uh, 638 says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is remarkable, right? So this is the, this is the divine will of God, right? This is the will of him who sent me. <laughs> Amazing. That of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day day. And now, at the end of verse 39, we might think, well, why does he say that I would lose nothing 
that I would raise it up on the last day, almost speaking of people uh, in a neuter sense, almost like they're an object, they're not persons, right? He doesn't personify them here, but he does in verse 40. For it is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. There it is. I will raise him up on the last day. The person, right? Everyone who beholds and believes in him. So beholding him and believing in him, I take these to be synonymous. Same thing, right? To behold, to look upon Christ is the same thing as to believe in Christ. Um, What did Jesus say, you know? Unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom, right? He has no capacity to believe in the kingdom of God, to enter into a, a, a saving faith so as to perceive the kingdom of God. Um, all of these synonyms for faith in the gospel of John. And now, consequently, you probably know this about John, but John, um, out of all the authors in the New Testament, John is known as the author of life, Right? He, he really zeroes in on that word life, zoe, and eternal life. Uh, he is the author of eternal life. He loves the concept of eternal life, right? What does he say in 1 John chapter 5? I think it's verse, is it verse uh, 20, I think it is, or no, verse 13. These things have been, these things I've said to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. What verse is that? 1 John 5, yeah, 1 John 5 I think it's, what, what is that, 19? Uh, look it up, somebody. 13. <laughs> Is it 13? Mm-hmm. Okay. 13. Um, everything that he laid down for us in the gospel is given to us so that we could have the epistemological assurance, which means how do we know what we know? <laughs> right? How do we know we know anything? Right? How do we know that this is not the matrix, this is all an illusion, we're going to wake up one day, we're going to be brain in a vat somewhere? Right. Well, contrary to that, the Bible gives us the total assurance that, in fact, we are not li- living in the Eastern uh, worldview of Maya, which means everything is illusion. Right? We're not. And how do you know that? Well, because of the things that were declared to us in Scripture. Apart from this, apart from what we have in the Word of God, we don't know if we have eternal life. We need the word of God to confirm our experience so that we know that we have eternal life. But you see the logic uh, right here in this verse. I mean, the logic is quite simple, right? He says, whoever believes, right, will have eternal life. And by virtue of the doctrine of eternal life, he says, I myself will raise him up on the last day. So how do you, how do you know that you're going to persevere to the end? Well, whether or not you have eternal life. How do you know you have eternal life? Well, whether or not you believe. It's that simple. These are simple gospel uh, truths. Any questions or comments on that? Anybody? Anyone? Um, in John, I've, I've, you know, I've said this before, but in the Gospel of John, what's unique to the Gospel of John is the concept of eternal life. Matter of fact, he substitutes the idea of the kingdom of God for eternal life. Uh, In the Gospel of John, there's maybe, I don't know, maybe three references to the kingdom of God. Everything else is eternal life. (laughs) Whereas in the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptics, 
which are, those are called the synoptic gospels, right? They are riddled with kingdom of God language and they speak very, very um, minimally about eternal life. So John is emphasizing something that I think really would appeal especially to a global audience uh, that understands the concept of life and doesn't necessarily understand the Jewish concept of the kingdom of God. Okay, that may be one of the reasons why. So, uh, there are the texts. Oh, and there's 1 John uh, 5.13 and other places. So, perseverance is rooted in eternal life. And uh, we know from John 17, right, that eternal life is not just something that we look forward to, right? It is something that we possess presently. Why will you persevere in this present age? Because you presently have eternal life, right? This is one of the best arguments I think that you can have for somebody that argues that you can lose your salvation. And be careful because they're out there. Uh, matter of fact, I was reading, um, uh, I was all excited. I got this new commentary on Hebrews. You know how excited I was about that. <laughs> I was excited. And uh, that Amazon box comes, you know. <laughs> Amazon's here. It's a good day, right? <laughs> yeah, it's an ice cream truck for adults. That's exactly what it is. Right? Oh, I come running. So um, I open up this commentary, and it's on. Um, it's the commentary that replaced FF Bruce in the NICNT commentary set, if you know what that is. Um, and it's by a gentleman by the name of Cockerell, and Cockerell, uh, in emphatically teaches in the book of Hebrews that you can lose your salvation. And it is a very, very um, exegetically rigorous commentary. It is not light reading at all. It's very technical. Uh, and I just sat there scratching my head and just going, ugh. You know what I mean? So, of course, what he's uh, zeroing in on is Hebrews chapter 6, the passage that we looked at beginning in verse 4 all the way to verse 6 where it talks about it is impossible to renew again those, you know, t uh, that have, you know, tasted and those who have partaken and those who have been enlightened and all of that is impossible to renew them again if they crucify unto themselves the Lord, you know, fresh, all of that, right? So what he's saying is that this is actually talking about actual loss of salvation that has actually happened in the, uh, the Hebrew situation. So... Did you know that about Hebrews? I did not. No? I did not. I did not. Yes, ma'am. Isn't, isn't Hebrews 4 through 6 um, talking about the people who aren't actually Christians to believe with, who actually believe, and they just said they were? And that's why they can't have their salvation? In a sense, that's right. Um, because if you go back to Hebrews chapter 4, remember, that's where he really starts tapping into the wilderness generation. The wilderness generation was that generation that because they didn't believe, God swore in his wrath they would not enter, right? So yes, I think Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 4, he starts making this analogy, this comparison with that apostate generation who were exposed to all the saving benefits even back in Israel, right? The redemption that came with the Exodus, for example, right? But because they didn't have true, genuine saving faith, they were, they, were, uh, they were not permitted to enter God's rest. So I think it is a parallel. That's good. Good observation. Yes, ma'am. I come from a charismatic background. And at the end of services, a lot, they would pray if you had fallen away from God or you'd fallen into sin. 
you know, uh, say this prayer and you you will believe again or so, something. To the, so it, is that wrong? Like renew renew yeah, your faith, faith. Re, re, recommit your faith. Recommitment okay. of faith, yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know. What do you guys think about that? <laughs> Man, I, I just think Go ahead, Landon. Don't hold back, brother. <laughs> You're with family. <laughs> yeah, we did, we did the exact same thing at my church. And um, I really just think that it creates false assurance to people who um, they're searching for a feeling every single time they come, to, especially to like a charismatic church. In the midst of that is this crazy great high of music and everything. And people are like, I want to rededicate my life and recommit it. Mm-hmm. And um, and they they, re- they they're like spending their whole lives recommitting themselves without ever once being born again, but they're just coming to just do this high, but they just fall right back into sin, and it's so like you'll see them you'll see them in the next couple of months the exact same thing. It's kind of like an evangelical confessional. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. You go check in for the week, and you know, okay, Lord, I'm gonna recommit my life this time and do it, man. <laughs> you, know, you know, the resolution. What what was that movie with the uh, Trish? What's that that uh, nerdy Christian movie that we watched? We watched a few. <laughs> 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 Which one? The, the, the love, the love, the love no, 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 the, the, those are, those are oh, too carnal okay. to be Christian. But, no, 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 I'm talking about um, the one where the guys signed the marriage contract and what is they, is, no, is that fireproof? Where the guys, they all get together and sign the marriage contract? Courageous. Courageous. That's what it is. Courageous. Don't want to bag on Kirk Cameron now. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's basically what you're doing. It's like you're going to resolve, right? You, that is almost like the epitome of pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. Right. You know, you're saying, okay, I can do it now. <laughs> you know what I mean? And the reality is, is that what the pastor really should say is if, if you, you know, if you, ha- if you have been living in sin and everyone knows it, right? And uh, then what you need is greater accountability with a local church. How is it that you were allowed to live in sin for you know, this great? And how is it that every week you need to be recommitted to the Lord because you've fallen away and here you go again, you're gonna make a whole new declaration, a whole, it's almost like a whole new conversion. So it's like a virtual, it's like a virtual being saved over and over again. I didn't know any better. I was recommitting my life to the Lord every week. Oh, I did too. I'm right there with you, sister. I've been there. Trust me, I've been there. I grew up Calvary Chapel. Which that's real big in Calvary Chapels. It's like a weekly New Year's resolution. It's like a weekly New Year's resolution. <laughs> Carlos. Well, I, I didn't go to a charismatic church, and so I'm wondering if, if you know, Lucky. Yeah. <laughs> you equate that, or, or is it like, almost like, you know, you're just broken. You're saved. But you're broken because you know you've been slipping up, a secret sin, and, and you're just falling on you know to your face. You're not glorifying the Lord in your your life, and you're like, Lord, I just I, I need yeah. to get right. I need yeah. to commit myself, almost like starting a new from that day forward. But yes, you are saved to begin with. But right. You know where you're failing because you know better. You know. Would that be the same, or that's all? Yeah, I think there is a precedence for that in Scripture. I mean, to seek inner renewal, right? Uh, the shuva of the Old Testament, the renewal, you know, where the, the psalmist is constantly asking God to renew him, to revive him in the way, right? Stuff like that. But I think it's the public declaration. It's almost like a, it's like this moralistic resolve that people are making, you know what I mean? And it just doesn't amount to much. It just ends up, you end up just repeating the process over and over again. And more than anything, it's just very, so man-centered, you know what I mean? Because you think it really has to do with you and your performance, you know? Yes? Well, now I was just thinking, like, 
mm -hmm. say something like in right. his resolutions, like resolve before he goes to bed or before he um, starts the day to inquire with the Lord and to well, it was different. What Edwards was doing was different. Uh, the Puritans, Edwards not alone in that. The Puritans had a common practice of, make, of drawing up resolutions. Uh, he didn't make that up. You know, the Puritans had been doing that for, for years and years. Uh, but it, and that wasn't, a, that wasn't, that wasn't uh, started from Edwards, you know, straying away from the Lord and then needing to make these resolutions every week. No, no, no. It was that he had resolved, right, to keep himself... Uh, uh, in the faith that he, he had resolved to live a very uh, pious life and he had certain resolutions that he always strived for every single day of his life. It wasn't a result of a backsliding. It's like, yeah. I, I think the danger is because um, that the, the false assurance that it provides, I think somebody brought that out. I'll never forget a young man came to our home church in Atlanta, just got into jail and had been shot and he comes back and the church is a big profession. Oh, we're gonna you know, rebaptize him and we recommit him and all of this stuff. And the Sunday after he got baptized, he never came back to church. Now that young man is walking around Atlanta somewhere saying, I'm saved, but he doesn't know Jesus from a hole in the ground. And yeah. that's a terrible thing. Right. And that's that's the problem that I think that this can bring to people. Yeah. yeah, yeah. A lot of churches that have that are at fault right. for lead, you know, deceiving. The person. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, when I used to go to Harvest, that used to happen every Sunday. The altar call at the end, I would see the same people going up there. <laughs> it's like, yeah. man, what's going on? But they don't have that accountability. You can go in and out, and nobody would know. That's right. What? How you live? Yeah. There's no church membership. Yeah. 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 I mean, Calvary is anti-church membership. So, do you have something? Yeah, I was gonna say, like, even at like even at my last church. Like they just merely just passed over people, and the same people, you know, with every eye closed, you know, and you know, every mm. head, every head down, and you know, they raise their hand. We had the same kids raising their hands every week. I had to go up and even talk to my pastors, and even you know, like these mm. kids would raise their hands, but then nobody would reach out to them to disciple them or anything like that. They had pass over them week after week. But I think what even what Trisha is saying, the thing that we have to do is a daily thing. Is even what Jesus said in Luke nine, um, that. We do have a daily responsibility to deny ourselves. You know, daily picking up our cross. Amen. Daily following Jesus, and that is something that we should resolve to do every day. Amen. Um, so, that's true. That's good. Very good. Very good. So let's look at some classic general proof texts for the doctrine. Uh, obviously, Romans chapter eight. Uh, these are just really some of the classic proofs, right? Romans chapter eight, verse thirty, is. Obviously, beginning there, the golden chain of redemption, and uh, it's kind of difficult to splice this passage up. Uh, beginning in verse 28, we know that God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That, that, that verse right there is foundational, you guys. It's absolutely foundational. Uh, it's not just that God you know, causes all things to work together. What, what a... What a what a great evangelistic moment, right? When you hear people throw that around, sort of in a moralistic way. Well, you know, he's good. He's causing everything for the good, brother, right? Just don't worry about it. Everything's going to be all right, right? <laughs> right? And then he's your coworker at work, and he cusses like a sailor. and you know. But don't worry. God's going to work it all to the good. Yeah, what a great opportunity to bring in the second half of the verse, right? And say, and say brother, but look at what it says here, right? Uh, I don't know if you call him brother, but, you know, you know, look at what it says here, right? I mean, it says those who love God, you know what I mean? Do you love God? 
You know what I mean? What does it mean to love God, right? And then those who are called according to his purpose. Have you been called by God? If you've been called by God, that means you've repented of your sin. You're walking in, in righteousness. You're, you know what I mean? You're, you're walking a, a life of obedience, you know, on and on and on. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Isn't it amazing when you talk to people about predestination, they say, you know, predestination, yeah, yeah, you know, I, yeah, I, there is something like that. It's just like, they act as if the word is not in the Bible, right? It's just like, it's amazing. It's, I don't know how people are reading their Bible, right? Because it's right there. I mean, the word is there in every translation. It is there. He predestined them to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. Who he called, he also justified. Who he justified, he also glorified. And again, the reality, or here's the here's a doctrine of, of perseverance. These, these qualifiers are spoken of in the past tense, right? In the perfect past tense, which means... Uh, to the author, he's looking at salvation in, in the way that it works from the, the perspective of completion, mm-hmm. right? He's saying this, is, this, this salvation that you've entered into, this is how it works, that if you've been saved, you will have been glorified. <laughs> I mean, that's how strongly the authors of the New Testament believed in the concept of eternal security. So coming back to my friend Cockrell in his commentary in Hebrews, what's wrong with his conclusion in the comment in, in Hebrews that you can lose your salvation, uh, Hebrews chapter 6? What's wrong with that? It yes, just doesn't agree with, with, this, with these scriptures of where the place that God says you will end up based on his calling, based on his choosing. Okay, so it contradicts a different portion of scripture, right? So what does that mean? He's wrong. Yeah. It means what? He's wrong. He's wrong. Why is it wrong? Because it, the Bible doesn't contradict itself. Precisely. So what kind of worldview does Mr. Cockrell have? Yeah. So what kind of worldview does he have? What does that say about his view of God? In what way? Okay, but 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 knowing but, but just because of what Carlos just said, right? He allows contradictions. Right. So he believes in a in a God that contradicts himself. He's believing in a worldview that says my God is allowed to live in self-contradiction. <laughs> right? Jesus said the scripture cannot be broken. Right? There, there's perfect harmony, continuity. It's called the perspicuity of scripture, which means the scripture is clear, right? Because it is one harmonious unit, right? So it is unthinkable for us, brothers and sisters, to have a view of God that he gives one form of salvation over here, and he gives a different form of salvation over here. (laughs) Absolute eternal security, absolute assurance, absolute perseverance over here, but no assurance, no perseverance, no eternal security over here, right? So the problem is with the exegete, not with the text, right? And of course, in, in terms of all the best commentaries of Hebrew and Hebrews, uh, Cockrell is uh, uh, sort of on his own on, on this one. The vast majority of my stack of commentaries on Hebrews uh, do not interpret Hebrews the way that he chose to do so. 
And of course, he's also rooted in a uh, Wesleyan tradition, so makes sense, right? Said. Makes sense. What's that? Enough said. <laughs> Enough said. What, is your, what was your bend in, in your ordering and in, in, your, your interest in it in the beginning? So he was not, a four-point four calories? Yeah, and I, think this, <laughs> and I think this is a good observation. It's a good issue to bring up here, too, that I read commentaries from, you know, a whole wide range of perspective. I don't just get the guys that agree with me on everything, you know what I mean? Uh, because um, as deficient as Mr. Cockerell's view is on that issue, his insights on other passages of Hebrews are sometimes the best out of all my commentaries. So we have to be careful to throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Mm -hmm. And that's very, very, um, that, that's something that can get out of control in our lives too. We can become so critical of everything and everybody that you know someone that disagrees with us on something like Calvinism has nothing to teach us whatsoever. And that's, that's of course absurd, right? Um, I mean, A.W. Tozer is not a Calvinist, but A.W. Tozer can teach you a whole lot about what it means to walk with God, you know what I mean, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Randy Alcorn doesn't share my view of the atonement, but Randy Alcorn has written perhaps the best recent book on heaven and finances and things like that that we can even read in the Christian, in Christian literature. So we have to be careful that we, we cannot, you know, we've gotten to the point in our Reformed theology where we cannot benefit from other guys. You know, some reformed guys like C.S. Lewis, not me, but some do. <laughs> That's maybe not, I won't go that far. <laughs> no, no, some people like Lewis because of his romanticism and his literary genius and all of that. Okay, fine, right? But just trying to underscore this, that, you know, in our church, what's going to be the culture? What's going to be the attitude? Well, it's not one of theological snobbery, right? We don't want to walk around with our nose held high thinking, well, nobody else has anything to teach us unless you're, you know, of, of the line of Calvin, you know what I mean? Uh, that, that's not always true, right? That's not always true. Uh, for example, um, just maybe a different example on this. You guys have heard me talk a lot about Robert Gagnon, right? And his book on homosexuality, which is the standard work. I mean, the Bible and homosexual practice by Robert Gagnon is the standard, but let me tell you something. Robert Gagnon's got some very liberal views that I would really disagree with in terms of authorship issues, he subscribes to what's known as uh, the uh, documentary hypothesis theory, which basically says that there are multiple authors for the Pentateuch and stuff like that. Two different authors for Isaiah. Uh, not good, you know. But can we learn from Robert Gagnon? Of course we can. You know, so that's what I mean. We need to be careful and you need to be mature enough to, as an old pastor friend of mine used to say, chew the meat and spit out the bones. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's what we got to do, right? Amen. Because sometimes we can have an overly purist mentality, right? To say, oh, this doesn't line up exactly with where I'm at, and you spit it all out, right? You, and, and, and you end up just really, you end up just really uh, sort of cheating yourself out of a blessing that you could have found or, you know. How many of you guys heard of uh, Richard Baxter? Richard Baxter uh, wrote the book entitled The Reformed Pastor, and he was a Puritan who was not Calvinist. Now, it's not good that he was not a Calvinist because after Baxter died, his church slipped into gross liberalism. But um, Richard Baxter had a very deficient view of the atonement. Uh, he battled it out with John Owen. 
you know, all these things. But man, Richard Baxter on what it means to be a pastor and what it means. How about the believer's everlasting rest? I mean, you want comfort for your soul? Read Baxter's The Believer's Everlasting Rest. I mean, so we have to be careful. Everybody get what I'm saying? Yeah, sure. no, nobody's condemning me right now for, <laughs> right? Deviating from the fold, right? I'm not. I mean, look, I'm, I'm as staunch Calvinist as you can get. I mean, like Piper said, I'm a seven-point Calvinist. <laughs> Um, okay, Ephesians chapter uh, chapter one. Ephesians chapter one. I think this is important too because Ephesians chapter one introduces the work of the Spirit in the context of perseverance. So the Spirit is at work in our perseverance. Ephesians chapter one, verse thirteen. Right. It says, "In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation." Right. That's the message of truth, folks. The gospel of our salvation. Right? Having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a erebon, a pledge, a down payment of our inheritance <laughs> with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Okay, massive, massive text here for perseverance, right? What is he saying here when he says, well, enough for us to say we are sealed, right? That's comforting to us because it's saying we are sealed. It's, 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 it sounds like a, it's a done deal, right? We're sealed. When you seal something, that's it. It's, it's sealed. It's cut off. It's closed off. No altar calls, please. <laughs> we don't do that here, young man. <laughs> it's a reformed church, brother, don't you know? <laughs> Talk to the dad. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Talk about shepherding a child's heart. Okay. All right. Um, so the sealing of the spirit is one thing, but listen to what it is. Listen to what is being said here, because when you infringe on the doctrine of perseverance, you are infringing on. How do I say this? You are infringing on God's investment right you ever look at it that way because what is he saying here the spirit has been given to us as a down payment it's a good way of translating that that word there erebon as a down payment of our inheritance so not only are we sealed with the spirit but we also have a pledge in our heart we have a down payment just looking at something here Yeah. And what's the down payment for? What's the down payment for? Anybody? Uh, yes, the down payment is for our inheritance. But then look at this, right? Not only do we inherit something, that means we get something, right? That's what we inherit, which is, of course, heaven, right? With a view, watch this, with, with a view... This is another secondary reason why we're sealed with the Spirit, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. You see that? Now, what does that mean, the redemption of his possession? How many of you have been told to redeem a coupon or redeem a, a, something else like that, right, at a store? 
Right, we got, uh, initially my wife and I, we bought some uh, rope over at REI. You ever shop at REI? Oh, I love that store. It's just so expensive. I don't shop there all the time, but I love REI. And I bought tons of rope because some of you know I make leashes. And um, uh, they gave us a gift card that was only good for like a few days. And I remember I have to, I put it in my calendar, I have to redeem, I didn't use those words, but that's what I was saying, I have to redeem this gift card at REI or it's going to expire, right? Well, that's what this is saying. What this is saying is that the spirit is that gift card, if you would. And what that, what that gift card of the spirit is saying to us is that God has to redeem what he, already, what he is already entitled to. I am entitled to that $20 gift card to go get whatever I want, right? Which happened to be some rope. Well, God is entitled to take his possession, to take possession of what he has redeemed, of what he has purchased. Isn't that amazing? So is God going to fail to obtain what he has purchased? Of course not. John Murray, in his book, oh boy, I'm out of time, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. How many of you heard me plug that book before? <laughs> you guys are like, yeah, all the time, right? In that book, I, that's the book I hand to people when I want to convert them to Calvinism, right? Because he doesn't talk about Calvinism in the book. The word is not mentioned. Cal, I don't even think Calvin is mentioned, right? There's no, okay, here's point one, here's point two, right? No. That's not what he does. What he does is he, he shows you that the language of salvation, terms like redemption, reconciliation, propitiation, these terms that are rooted in the text of scripture, right? He shows you the Old Testament background of those words and he shows you what they mean and what they cannot mean. And one of the things that he shows you is that in the Old Testament, when the word redemption is used, it speaks about something that has been purchased and that will be obtained. You see that? So if God redeems us, it means he will procure us. He will obtain us. It's that simple. Can God fail to obtain what he has redeemed? Of course not. It's impossible. So can, it, can we fail to persevere? Of course not. Not if you've genuinely been redeemed. Right. Way out of time, way over time. So let's go to worship, okay? God bless you guys.